Oh, Father, we praise you this morning. Cast us not away from your presence. And do, Father, if it pleases you, renew a right spirit within us to approach this, the holy word of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Well, it seems that for at least two more sessions, I will focus on these seven verses for reasons that um, I think are very important in our understanding of the history of doctrine. You know, it's not just the history of events sometimes, it's the history of how the church over the years has applied the truths that we supposedly learned or should have learned or had before us and seemed plain but yet we're confused over the centuries. You know, we didn't just pop up here yesterday. Church began a long time ago. In fact, we look back to the time of Christ some 2,000 years ago. And then 2,000 years before that to the time of Abraham because Jesus said we're all who believe in him are sons of Abraham. And so we have a long history of the scriptures to understand And the Bible itself has been said to be one-third history, one-third law, one-third prophecy, one-third history. This morning, I want to focus on the history of the doctrine of church and state and the relationship between the two. It's very important to us. And um, so I'm going to read again. What am I doing here? I'm in 1 Corinthians 13. Um, Romans 13, I'm going to read the... First seven verses once again. And so let our thoughts turn to Romans 13 where the Apostle Paul writes, Let every soul be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister." an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, Honor to whom honor. Father, we ask that we add your presence to this, the reading of your holy word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so you can see the apostle gives the rule. You'll notice in scripture that it's um, it's the custom of Paul when he teaches to give the rule and not list the exceptions. Right? It's inconceivable at times that some of the rules don't have exceptions. They obviously do, and they did in in the scriptural stories themselves, which I'll get into today. So we talk about the rules, but he's talking here in verse 5 that you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also 
because of conscience. Our conscience being satisfied with the things we believe and the things that we stand on inwardly is important to God. So much so that he says in the next chapter, he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith for whatever is not from faith is sin. Conscience is important to God. And friends, we might as well learn the lesson of history, the lesson of our own experience. We don't all agree with every jot and tittle of what's written. Our conscience leads us in disparate ways sometimes, even from one another. And that's really the story of the church throughout history. But we can see that there are two motivators for human action that are recognized by God. First, there is wrath, which is fear. There's certain um, things that we do because we're fearful not to, because God is watching. And there's certain things we don't do because we're fearful if we do them before God. So there's fear of wrath, and then there's conviction of conscience. I think it was Luther that said it's neither right nor safe to violate one's own conscience. We'll never all arrive at the same conclusions about a particular subject. I wouldn't expect it, not in this lifetime. We'll never all arrive at the same conclusions about a subject, not even about the meaning of a particular verse of Scripture, much less a jot and tittle acquiescence with regard to doctrine. You know what acquiescence is? It's agreeing with protest. All right, I'll go along with it kind of thing. We don't even get that usually. It's sort of an agree-to-disagree type of thing. So there'll always be these variations of understanding. There's likely always to be um, differing applications of doctrine as well. It would stand to reason that if our understanding of doctrine varies, that the application of those doctrines will also vary. Stands to reason. It seems to me, though that from the preponderance of Scripture, that intellectual clarity should result in spiritual purity. Intellectual clarity, a right understanding of the word, is our only path to a pure exercise of the doctrine that the word teaches. Doesn't that make sense? If we're confused in our understanding, we'd be confused in how to act on it. So conscience plays... A great part in this as well. Now I'm staying on these verses for the time being in order that we may gain an understanding of how the church has applied Romans 13 over the centuries. It's a big undertaking. I'm going to condense it way down and uh, it'll be sort of a two-part to be continued uh, type of message today. And I debated whether or not I should do it at all, but I think it's important to do. And um, And so let's begin with this. At the outset of this section on Romans 13, about the relationship between church and state, I made an astounding statement, and no one said anything to me about it. But I made an astounding statement, an extraordinary statement, with regard to the historical record of the relationship between church and state. Now, we've had the word of God here from Paul since the first century. And my statement was this, it's never been properly applied until the churches on this continent came into being. 
Do you find that outstanding? Now, when I say that, please don't put me in the camp of those who is decrying the wisdom and intelligence of all those wiser men than me that have gone before. Always remember, a great reformer does great things, but he doesn't do everything. And we build upon his shoulders, and we'll talk about that as we get into this. The relationship between church and state and the extent to which there is a so-called separation of church and state was not done right until the post-Puritan era of the American experiment. Now you're all saying, why would Dan say that? Dan loves the Puritans. I do. And I love what they taught us as far as they went. Though the biblical separation of church and state was a concept that arose in England with the emergence of who? The Baptists. Friends, the Baptists got a lot of things right. And this is one. The Baptists are an offshoot of a group called the Independents, where they recognize that the church should not be ordered and run and dictated to by the state. Now, to us, that's a natural assumption, it seems, right? The wisdom of our not-so-pious forefathers, like Jefferson and Madison, wrote those very words, church and state. And the great wisdom of, I think, the, probably the, the greatest teaching on this subject, subject comes from none other than Roger Williams of Rhode Island and Providence Plantations, which are no longer called that because you can't use the word plantation anymore in our society. Did you know that? Roger Williams, who I have considered a, a a, a general pain in the neck to the whole founding of the colonies, but he was a genius on this subject. I just read a book on it that Daniel gave me. So Daniel and I have read the book on Church and State by Roger Williams. But the biblical separation of church and state arose in England, but it wasn't enshrined in national documents until our Constitution. Friends, we ought to recognize something. Our Constitution, particularly our First Amendment, is a gift of God to the church. It prohibited government from overstepping in areas clearly carved out by God to be under authority other than state authority. So what am I saying? I'm to some extent impugning the intellectual grasp of the doctrine by the reformers and Puritans who I greatly respect with regard to doctrine. And I hope that as I do this, I don't throw out the theological baby with the doctrinal bathwater. Neither do I want to believe that I'm staking out new ground according to my own opinion. I don't take a sola Cassirian view of the scripture, and I don't expect you to. Although you could do worse. But some things are simple, and some things are just simply stated, and some things are clear. So why did these great men get it so abominably wrong. Well, I'm going to tell you my theory on that. My theory on that is because tradition is such a powerful influence on our lives, and we don't notice it, and we'll never notice it if we don't study the history of it, at least 
a cursory study. So I believe that I can demonstrate that application of this teaching over the centuries has been misconstrued and misapplied, and I want us to recognize that the work of great men is always, friends, an unfinished work. God doesn't have one man do the whole thing. And we're workers as well. And if we have to satisfy our own intellectual understanding and our own consciences before God, we ought to look into the reasons why the founders went astray on such what seems to be such an important point. So Paul has taught us this very thing, this building upon the foundations of other men, standing on the shoulders of the great reformers of history, standing on the shoulders of he himself, because he wrote this uh, to the Corinthians. He said, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds upon it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. Don't build on it frivolously. He goes on. I've I've sort of curtailed the passage. Don't build on it with perishable things like wood, hay, and stone, right? That can be easily blown down by the big bad wolf, right? He goes on to say, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work. What's he talking about? He's talking about the fires of judgment in the last day. And when they burn the earth, those who have built upon rightly upon the doctrines of truth will be impervious to the heat. It's a metaphor. But it's a fearful metaphor, and it's based on a coming fearful day. So it matters that we look into these things. It matters that we dare to call them out when they are false. And so having said all that, what I'm concerned with today is the history of doctrine and how the churches have applied this particular doctrine over the centuries. We should review it to ensure that the place we find ourselves in today with regard to this ongoing history of the church does not need extensive renovation. And if it does, let the renovations begin. We're examining ourselves. That's been the history of the church since the beginning. You look over the word of God, you look over what you've done in the light of the word of God, and if it doesn't add up, you renovate, you make alterations, and you bring the church more in line with God's vision for the church. Some renovations have been added without scriptural warrant. It's easy to see that. Others have been added in light of Scripture, yet all of them would say that they were made in the light of Scripture. So the clarity of hindsight shows us how the realities of our own times may blind us to our own need to see things in a different way. We are always affected by the way things are and may become blinded to the way things ought to be. It's been said of the great reformers, Calvin and Luther, Luther, 
who I most ardently revere for two reasons. One, they're so much wiser and, than myself, but they revered each other. They were contemporaries. They never met, but they corresponded once or maybe twice. But it has been said of them that they each had a different approach to reforming the church. Luther kept everything of the old system that didn't need to be thrown away, and Calvin threw away everything that didn't need to be kept. And that's how it's been characterized, at least by Lorraine Bettner, where I downloaded the the quotation, but I think it's traceable to him. From my perspective, Calvin's approach to Reformation is the more effective one. Because if you throw out everything, then tradition isn't there to blind you. Tradition is very, very powerful. I'll give you a personal example of how powerful it is. Right? The Lord's Day. The seventh day. The Sabbath day. Right? Goes all the way back to Sinai. The fourth commandment, the first table of the law, with the fourth commandments of our duties to God, right? Keep holy the Lord's day. Comes right from God. Christmas comes from nowhere. Now, I have loved the Christmases of my youth, and I have all the wonderful memories of the pine-scented morning with the stockings hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. And I've had all those wonderful things, but I have no command to honor Christmas. I do it if my conscience allows me, or I don't. But this year it got tested because they both came on the same day. And rather than do both, and I don't understand why people couldn't figure out how to do both, but the churches canceled the Sabbath in favor of the tradition. That's how strong traditions can be. And it's my belief that we lost several families of the church over my insistence on that point. So goodbye. (laughs) I don't know what else to do. We stand on the obvious. So that's just a case in point from our own recent history. So I think Calvin's approach to the Reformation was the more effective. Throw out everything and start over, right? But you only keep the things that must be kept. Yet I by no means diminished the contributions of Luther, and neither did Calvin diminish Luther's hard-won beginning of reform. They had a common enemy in the Roman Catholic Church, and that kept them um, admirable of each other, at least. I mean, Calvin referred to Luther as the great apostle of the Reformation, and Luther referred to Calvin as the great theologian of the Reformation, and they said these, they made up these nicknames affectionately for one another. Um, so they had a common enemy in the Roman Catholic Church because it had usurped so much power. And I'm talking about not just power over the churches, but political power in the lands. A place that it seems to me from Romans 13 could never be appropriated. So they were perhaps blinded to a separation of church and state because the two had acted as one since Constantine in the 4th century. Go back to 312 AD. 
So for some 1,200 years, the church and the state were one. So when Calvin and Luther were throwing out what needed to be thrown out and keeping what needed to be kept, they couldn't see that the relationship of the church, which was under the thumb of government for 1,200 years, was one of those things that needed to be thrown out. So we must never expect that even the greatest reformers were on the right side of every question. Neither should we expect that they would live long enough to perfect within the churches even the most basic of reforms. So I'm not impugning the intelligence, the diligence, nor the goodwill of any of these great men. Having said that, I return to my first sweeping criticism of the church's application of Romans 13, because they got it drastically wrong. The political pendulum swinging dramatically one way and then just as dramatically the other way is the story of history. So the question before us today is what is the right relationship between the church and the state? Where does the authority of one begin and the other end? What are the areas of church government where the state has scriptural authority to interfere? And when it does interfere, must the church comply in every case? And if not, what should be the consequences of the church's refusal to be ruled by the secular authority? Now, there's just a handful of New Testament passages that speak to these questions. The first one is the one we have before us. It's the most potent. But we can see from them that though the state is given a clear mandate to rule, there are always exceptions. Peter wrote this, Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to to the king as supreme or to governors or to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good, which echoes Romans 13 very well, I should think. But this same apostle said to those in power who arrested him and John and forbade them from preaching the word of God, They said to those rulers, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. There comes a time when men stand on the distinction. But make sure that you're satisfied in your mind about it so that your conscience can be clear when you do it. Because Peter said to them, You can rule what you want, but we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So whatever rulings come down, we have a great apostolic precedent here to stand with God against the state. Now, if you think that's the only place in Scripture where you can come up with something like that, I would refer you to, well, let's go way back. Let's go to Moses. Seems to me Moses stood against the established authority. In fact, he pronounced ten curses upon him before he wised up. What about, remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were told to bow to an idol and they would not, they accepted death? You see, that's what happens when you stand against the state. They, they usually kill you. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood against Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, the great conqueror, and prevailed. Now, 
you always prevail. Sometimes you prevail and are left alive. Sometimes you prevail and have been killed, but you always prevail. Daniel, after them, stood against the next empire, Persia. He he wouldn't bow to an idol either or curtail his prayer practices to God. And they threw him very famously into the lion's den. Of course, the Bible says God shut the mouths of the lions. So it's been done. Look at David. David stood against Saul for many years, friends. But notice he did it honorably. Notice he didn't do it by killing Saul, even though he knew he was anointed and Saul was cursed by God. It was not his place to lay a hand on God's anointed. He said that repeatedly, right? But David stood against the established power of the land for the sake of God's kingdom. I could go on, but I think I'll end with John the Baptist. John the Baptist, well, lost his head for publicly decrying the adultery of his leaders, right? You know that very famously from the scriptures. So he didn't say, well, Herod's doing it. It must be okay. It's the rule. No, there's always this overriding conscientiousness in the believer that there comes a point when you can't stand with the prevailing state. So we have before us important questions in these times, most especially because we've recently been tested with this, right? We've been tested. In a time of declared national emergency, we lived through (coughs) a dangerous pandemic. Christians weigh their dangers. Which is more dangerous, (laughs) to fear him who can kill the body or to fear him who can kill both body and soul in hell? To paraphrase Jesus, (laughs) right? So we live through the pandemic, and due to the sweeping nature of the danger to society, the powers that be appropriated unprecedented authority to shut down the essential functions of the church. I just want to remind us of that because we tend to forget things. You know why? They're not in front of us anymore. The media. The media decides what we'll know and what we won't know unless we're wise and come to church on Sunday morning. So, friends, it's if the Constitution, which is God's clear gift to the church, was forgotten and overridden. It's like, all right, the Constitution is good in in good times, but these are dangerous times. And so the First Amendment, which clearly gives people the right of speech, the right of assembly, right? The right of their own forms of worship according to their conscience, right? And then we can publish our ideas, the freedom of the press. And they suspend those. And we find out later, it was maybe not as dire a situation as was foretold. And that was unfolding all the way through, right? We began to see these things. I saw MacArthur, who fought this, by the way, and and sued his own state government because they fined him every time he met. Thousands and thousands of dollars. Now, he has a great church in California of, um, I don't know, 7,000 people. Bob, does that sound right? A lot of people. And I recently saw him interviewed about this, and he prevailed. And the state not only had to pay back the fines, they had to pay all the legal fees of the church because they were wrong because you don't get rid of 
the First Amendment because of some perceived danger from some autocrat that hates the church anyway. So um, contrary to the First Amendment, they restricted the functions of worship and Sabbath meeting schedules. You remember, you had to wear masks. Only a certain percentage of people could come. There was no singing allowed, right? And if you met outside, nothing changed. It was insane. There were people in a car all alone with a mask on, driving down the street. I saw a, bicyc- a bicyclist bicycling, middle of nowhere, mask on his face. What do, you think's go- what do you think that's doing other than robbing you of your oxygen? I'm saying decrees affect us. Authorities affect us. Tradition of obeying affects us. Sometimes in a good way, sometimes not. So I'm not trying to relive those days, but I'm saying that when government rules upon which sectors of society are, quote, essential and which are not, when strip joints and liquor stores are said to be essential, when crowds in the street burning and looting and decrying everything that many of us stand for, not the least of which is law and order, are all acceptable practices while worship and praises to God and fellowship with his saints and biblical instruction and the comforts of the Lord and his people are unessential and need to be controlled or curtailed. Those are dangerous times. I'm assuming everybody remembers well what I'm talking about. What will God expect from us in those times? So that when we stand... Against the tide of popular opinion, we're found standing on the rock of Scripture and not upon the sand of man-made tradition. So just how much secular authority will the Lord God hold us to, and just how much resistance will he expect from us? These are things worthy of our looking into, don't you think? And I think part of the instruction of this is seeing how the church has handled it over the centuries. They've handled it. In different ways. So if we're properly informed in the evil day and when we defy authority in the name of God, our consciences will be clear before God. And that's what this verse is about. It's not just from fear. It's not just from fear of retribution of the authority. It's not just from fear of retribution of God. But I'm settled in my conscience, not motivated solely by fear, But by righteousness, is this the right place to stand? Does my understanding, is my understanding of God's directive correct? And can I apply it according to conscience? So we must take care, friends, that tradition is not the enemy of responsibility. Most traditions are morally neutral. And we have liberty in Christ to develop certain seasonal or cultural festivals or observances. So traditions in and of themselves are usually innocuous. Do you know the word innocuous? It means harmless. But traditionalism, friends, once you add an ism to something, it usually makes it bad, just to let you know. All right? Even, dare I say it, nationalism You don't put the nation before God. I have never said my country right or wrong. 
an ism usually makes it bad. Traditionalism is the idea that traditions rule the day, and it's a vast and abhorrent evil. My first case in point in the Roman Catholic Church's application of Romans 13, um, it's readily observable from history that the Roman idea of government is that the church and state are one. And I'll demonstrate that. I could go on with many, many examples of this, but I've chosen a few potent ones. Church and state are one. Each has a different function, they would say, but regardless of their separate functions, both areas of authority ought to be controlled by the church. In other words, the pope is in charge of the political affairs of, affairs of the nations. And so ecclesiastical authority is supreme authority. Now, we don't see that in Romans 13, and I can tell you there's nowhere in the New Testament where that is. We can see throughout history how this plays out, though. It was the position of the church in the medieval period to call states together to declare war on other states. Now, that's unthinkable to us today. Can you imagine me standing here this morning calling us all to arms to go to fight against Freetown? Because they're doing the wrong thing down there, worshiping idols over there in the forest, which, by the way, they are. (laughs) But in 590 A.D., Gregory the Great, have you heard of Gregory the Great? He was great, and these are great men, but they're, they're flawed men. And, it's, and we have the benefit of hindsight to look at them, so let's use it properly to look back. Gregory the Great became pope in Rome. He was not called the Great because of his theological prowess or his pastoral service to the people. He was called great because he was a great conqueror. When a power vacuum emerged in Rome, Gregory was made pope and stepped up to the task of gathering troops, negotiating treaties, doing everything necessary to bring victory against an aggressor, which at the time was one of the tribes of Germania. Germania had a lot of troublesome tribes, if you look through history. You remember the Goths? You remember the Huns of the Caucasus, right? There was a couple other groups that I always like to point out. There's one called the Vandals. Did you know that? And my favorite, the Berserks. <laughs> These are all little warring nations that molested Rome in its, you know, thousands plus years history. But um, so they had the Lombards of Germania in that time. And of course, Gregory was raised up. Important to remember is that Gregory was made pope by popular appeal. With the new respect he gained from his victories, he went on to teach in other areas of Christian doctrine. For example, hagiography. You know the word hagiography? Okay, hagios is the New Testament Greek for saint. And hagiasmos is the root, the root word hagios is there, and it means sanctification. So hagiography is a study of the saints. But to the medieval mind, you and me aren't the saints. The saints are the superheroes of God's kingdom in that time. The saints are the superheroes of the day. They were to be revered, certain saints, revered to the point where you could pray to them. Body parts and clothing of the saints were put on display and revered. So Gregory taught on purgatory, a pagan myth. 
By the way, if you ever study out the origins of purgatory, you might find that it, um, it's traceable back to Celtic Ireland in the time of, of Patrick. Now, Patrick was a very great man, a very great missionary. And again, he didn't do everything right, and he did some things doctrinally wrong, as the Catholic Church did in that era. But apparently, the door to purgatory is in a cave in Ireland. And that's uh, part of the folklore of it. And you have to use folklore to understand it because it doesn't exist in Scripture. Purgatory is a myth, friends. But he taught on it. He taught on veneration of the saints. There's another name for it. Idolatry. He taught on salvation by works and so on. All to which owe their potency to pagan traditions and not scriptural warrant. In other words, we always believed these things. That's why we believe them. You see the power of tradition? These are smart men. These are not to just be ridiculed or laughed at. So it's safe to say that Gregory was a traditionalist. He followed popular myth and legend over biblical truth. You've heard me talk of Urban II. He was a Frenchman of the 11th century, 1095, right at the end. He took it upon himself to unite the states of Western Europe and to remove the raiding hordes of Muslim warriors from the Holy Land. They were displacing Christians and threatening Constantinople, which was the capital of Byzantium, which is today Turkey. Even though Urban had excommunicated Alexis, Alexis was the pope in Constantinople. There were two popes. There's times in history when there were three popes. And you know what they did? They excommunicated each other. So he excommunicated Alexis, um, the Pope of the Greek Orthodox Church, and he came to their aid and rallied troops to war to take back Jerusalem. And Urban, like Gregory before him, also plied his hand at creating a new way of salvation. He believed the myth of his own power, and he created on the spot a new way of salvation. If a man dies in a holy crusade, his soul would be safe with God. Does that sound like anything to you? Sounds like Islam, doesn't it? The new power of the Pope took off, and so Eugenius III, the Pope of the Second Crusade, took it a step further because he had precedent to do so. Simply signing up for participation as a combatant in the Second Crusade was enough to purify a man's soul from heaven totally disregarding the blood of Christ as the sole debt payment for sin. A amazing. Why? Tradition. So this is what I would call tradition creep, right? It gets stronger with each wave of traditionalists that come into power and believe their power is over God's church. One tradition void of truth built upon another tradition equally void of truth. So we can see how the entire message of the gospel can be corrupted. The cross of Christ made of no effect, but the work of our hands may gain us what we seek and satisfy our sin debt before God. It's not unlike the indulgences of later centuries, which we talk about a lot in our Reformation fair, right? <clears throat> That's when the money in your pocket may save you 
and your dead relatives who are now suffering in purgatory. And all these corruptions were caused by misplaced authority in the church. The need for a crusade created the need for purgatory, and later the existence of purgatory necessitated a new crusade. So whether or not we agree agree with some of the actions of these early popes, the question remains as to whether the church is commissioned of God to wage hot wars against a physical enemy. Let me give you a hint here. What did Jesus say? My kingdom is not of this world. And we should wonder whether the church is commissioned to pluck its leaders from the ranks of of the military, regardless of their theological understanding of the written word. But when we ask how men justify such powers, their answer is, it's tradition. Or they say, it's always been that way. Now, we know it's, that's never the truth, that it's always been that way. You could say it's been that way for a long time. You could say it's been that way for many hundreds of years. But that just tells me that human beings have always been in error. Hundreds of years doesn't impress me. Truth impresses me. And so the truth of it is, the traditions went back to a particular period in history when one other great man usurped power over the church, and I believe he did it for good reasons. And you've heard me speak of him. His name was Constantine, also Constantine the Great, right? Constantine saw the power of Christianity. Friends, the church had lived through the pogroms and persecutions of fickle and vicious Caesars for 300 years. And we're now so numerous and so powerful that a leader for political reasons made a very smart move to give them a place in society. In other words, the church did quite well without the government in 300 years. But if you were there at that time, you would say, you know, that Edict of Milan in 312 AD by Constantine sounds pretty good. They're going to not only stop persecuting us, they're going to make our religion the religion of the land. We win. And, and Constantine himself claims to be a Christian. He claims to have seen in the heavens a great sign which told him which enemies to conquer and to conquer in Christ's name, all of which, of course, are disputable. Constantine was called Isapostolos, which means equal to the apostles. Isapostolos, friends. Thankfully, he didn't write a book of scripture. I have no doubt it would have been, it would have been included. So Constantine saw the power of Christianity and for better or worse, harnessed it for political reasons and personal power. And his decrees were binding and eternal with that name Apostolos. And the church accepted his reforms because it greatly benefited the saints to be assured that the persecutions were over. And that, the Christ, and that Christianity would become the religion of the land, the official religion of the Roman Empire. The modern concept of the Roman Catholic Church was born in 312 AD. Friends, don't ever believe the mythology that it goes back to Peter. 
There was no Catholic church in Peter's time. Peter is not the first pope. No one can even show that he ever went to Rome. And he's claimed to be buried under the canopy in the, in the center of the, uh, of the uh, Vatican under the great dome built by Michelangelo in the, in the 1400s. So he ratified Nicaea in 325 with their new head. Constantine presided over the debate. You remember, he called all the churches together to get together on matters of doctrine, most particularly in this debate. It was the deity of Christ. All right? It was the deity of Christ. And I want you to know that Athanasius, who held up the biblical view of the deity of Christ, that means that Jesus Christ is God. He's one with God. He's of the same substance with God, right? He held up that, and the man named Arius, from which we get the Arian view, which Jesus was just a created, um, great man created lesser than God by God, lost the day. But the Arians didn't go away. And Constantine died, a full-fledged Arian, and was baptized in his, on his deathbed by Eusebius of Nicomedia, who was an avowed Arian. Just so you know, Nicaea didn't really settle it in the land. The, con- the conversation, the controversy continued. Clearly, friends, church and state make strange bedfellows. And you might think that such things were made clear by a fair appraisal of history. But some 1,200 years later, friends, during the most sweeping period of Reformation in the church, the relation of the church as a child of the state was not seriously contested. Why? Tradition. The Lutheran church after Luther became and still is the state church of Norway, Denmark, Finland, and Sweden as well as other places. Church and state are married with, between doctrine and practice. Even the Reformation in England and Scotland, Scotland, which made such great contributions to doctrinal purity in the Reformation era, did not see the need to separate church and state. All they wanted to do was get their guy in power. When Henry VIII broke from Rome, we know that very well, I hope, by now, in this church, 1536, rather than turn the reins of the church over to the bishops of the land, who are already rife with potent Puritan influence, he declared himself head of the new Anglican church. He became the head of the church. We know that he made the move for selfish Purposes. We know it was divorce, to divorce his wife Catherine in favor of Anne. What is rarely mentioned is that the move made by him made him richer and more powerful than he ever was before. He appropriated Catholic cathedrals and monasteries and the wealth contained within them. So when Protestant voices cried out against the obvious excesses of the king, they did not vie for an independent church. Protestants got it wrong too. Rather, 
they called out their princes to develop a prayer book that would unify them as one religious body with clear concessions made to the body of Catholic beliefs and practices already widely held by the people and the nobles as well. So they pulled together a prayer book. Why? Because you weren't smart enough to pray for yourselves. You might pray a heretical prayer or a doctrinally false prayer. So they pulled them together, and the only prayers that could be used in the church were the ones that were written by these church leaders, most particularly Thomas Cranmer, who, by the way, was generally right in his doctrine and a good man. And the prayers are very beautiful statements, but they're not individual statements from your individual hearts. Those are not allowed anymore in the church. This is the Protestant church, friends, the Anglican church. And today they still have priests and they still call themselves father and they still wear vestments and robes and baptize babies and do all these things that come from nowhere but tradition. The Anglican church never even divested itself from the defunct priesthood of the Old Testament, which ought to give you a hint as to why the reformers missed this. Henry, though he was never a devout believer himself, became head of the church and appointed and removed leaders in the church as he wished. When he died, his son Edward, nine years old, he was a sincere Protestant, as sincere as a very smart nine-year-old can be, and he became the new Protestant king. The country became a Protestant nation because the king was a Protestant. Is that how it works? Is that how the gospel works? If we get a Catholic president, we all become a Catholic? No, because we have a right relationship between church and state, and they didn't. Edward died six years later, friends. At 16, his sister Mary, who was the devout Catholic daughter of Catherine, the wife her father divorced, became queen and head of the church. You think she has a chip on her shoulder? Her little brother became king over her and made her religion... Uh, a, a crime, not only a sin, but a civil infraction, right? So f- for five years, she ruled. She died of stomach cancer, by the way, strangely. She had a tumor so big, she thought she was pregnant. I just thought that was an interesting side note. But she, she killed so many Protestants trying to convert the nation to Catholicism that she earned the name Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary is not a drink. It's a person. So Mary dies five years later. Her sister Elizabeth, the daughter of Henry's second wife, rises to be head of the church. And though she leaned Protestant, the new head of the church was intent on tolerating both parties. She tried to make, you know, do the Rodney King thing. Can't we all just get along? And through all the years of intimate connection between church and state and all the corruptions, all the reformers called for a righteous king to take the place of the former unrighteous king. It's that king we've got to get rid of. How could such an informed leader or informed leaders believe that in this royal musical chairs of the times actually affected the purity of a single person's faith? And then the Anabaptist movement came around. Finally, the Anabaptists came out. They had a problem, though, at the state. They didn't believe the state should exist at all. They were the defund the police movement of the 16th century. Really. 
and they were just not to be trusted in their understanding of the gospel. So there really was no tradition that gave a proper balance of all these things. Now, I'm not decrying the church of all that time. They did the master work of bringing the gospel of Christ back to the people. They gave us our our Bibles in our own languages so we could read them in our homes and worship in our homes. They did the great work, but there was more work to be done. And Romans 13 was the path to doing it. So next week, I want to make the case that the persecuted church that led up to the time of Constantine was probably a more potent spiritual force, a more scripturally pure body than the one Constantine engineered. The church that conquered Rome while they were quietly being persecuted. Why? Because we wrestle not with flesh and blood, with powers and principalities that are visible, the ones that are invisible. For 1,200 years, church and state were one, and at the few and various intervals where it was not one, it was struggling mightily to become one again. And so the Roman church and the Greek church were separate from each other, but both joined to their respective governments and military might. The popes of each had their armies, and they joined in the Royal Crusades, which is a wonderful story, by the way. And then comes the Reformation. Many good things were discovered. The way of salvation, the abolishment of the priesthood. Not, actually, it wasn't the abolishment of the priesthood. It was the recognition of the priesthood of all believers. All of these great things were done. The word of God came to us in our own languages. Men had to die who dared to go against Rome and translate the scriptures. And men of God from every walk of life entered the ministry. They were not appointed by some pretentious theological authority. And still, the unity of church and state prevailed. There were sweeping doctrinal reforms, but never did those reforms extend into the realm of the relationship between church and state. I want to end with a reading from from Mark. Mark chapter 7, where he says in verse 7, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. He said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. Father, we ask in Jesus' name that we build upon the shoulders of these great men and add to an unfinished work. We add that we would take heed how we build and that it would stand in the day of judgment. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.